Black Cats Run Podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. On today's episode, we talk about what is the implication of the fact that recovery isn't real, and how should we think about designing training as a consequence of this understanding. Let's get into today's episode. Last episode, we had talked about um, the concept of recovery and we tried to look at it you know, from a semantic perspective, uh, by which I mean, you know, understand how do people use that term, and then from that perspective, then say, okay, is this concept real? Is this concept validated? Um, we also acknowledge, you know, the more like legitimate forms of recovery, like, you know, if you get out of breath and you stop and you get your breath back, right? Simple things like that. You know, that's the genuine form of recovery. But what we sought to demonstrate. Um, and hopefully provided a you know convincing argument in support of is the idea that the recovery sort of modality as the driver of improvement in training is um, a misconception. It's false. And it, as a consequence, feeds into certain design assumptions because we design what we do, whether we design deliberately, uh, mindfully, over time, um, we're going to design what we do in the same way that we're going to design if we don't really feel that we're thinking or planning. Because when we make decisions as people, as humans, we're informed by the understandings that we bring with us to that decision-making process. And it's true that the more thoughtful that we might be about making a decision, we might be better able to create um, some higher quality um, outcomes based on what we design through our accumulated decision making. But we're still ultimately going to be driven by the basic assumptions. And so recovery is an example of a basic assumption. So if you are going to approach the concept of fitness development and training for any athletic discipline, um, certainly though the endurance sport disciplines in particular, this recovery modality is a big thing. Um, but if you're going to take it from that perspective, then I think what you're going to find is that your training is going to end up looking a certain kind of a way. And you can deliberately plan it and map it out, or you can be sort of more spontaneous. Every morning you go to that space or that time of day when you do exercise and you kind of do what you're going to do. Um, but that, that concept is going to have some sort of an influence that's just kind of inevitable. And the argument for this recovery stuff is, is contrasted um, with this sort of extremophiled um, practices of people who, you know, do, quote unquote, hard things every day. So another semantic word um, or another, not a semantic word, that sounds stupid, right? But what I'm really trying to say is another instance of uh, semantic consideration here is what does it mean to go hard? So I think going hard is usually perceived in terms of exertional demand. You know, what is the level of physical um, work feeding into perceived stress? You know, pain would be one really simple concept to think about this. And people who represent going hard every day and not taking recovery, they say, well, I go hard and I make myself hurt and I make myself miserable. And um, I think one of the you know, reasons why people present that is because it's a very uh, glory-seeking uh, narrative that people are drawn to that 
Um, and it makes us think, wow, this person must really know something. I can't push myself like that. And con artistry is a basic ingrained human behavior that people will try to find ways to uh, manipulate situations to get the outcomes that they want. Um, and, you know, telling people that, you know, they train really hard. If that draws attention um, and engagement to you, then people are going to do it. So that's one aspect of that is people just lying about what they're doing. Another aspect of this to think about, and this is, I think, more um, has more sort of like potential meaning to it, is the idea and the possibility that, well, people, when they're, quote unquote, going hard, that, well, what is what does it really mean to do something that's hard? So if you were going to go and run um, around a, uh, a room in your house and you set up, you know, three or four cones, and you made it a little like triangular loop or a rectangular loop. And you said, oh, I'm just going to go in there and I'm going to just run around that for 30 minutes. And there's no windows in the room. You can't have any music. Nobody's going to be in there doing it with you. Um, and you can go as slow as you want. That's going to be really hard to do that because it's super boring and it's super unstimulating. Right? You know, it, it's like almost putting yourself in a solitary confinement, some sort of sensory deprivation situation. Um you know, and that's why people continue to run outside despite the gamification, um, you know, of indoor training equipment, you know, because, you know, we need to be in that stimulating environment. And even running outside can be tedious and boring and challenging. And so that's a different kind of hard where it's hard to initiate yourself to do it um, because you don't really see the um, appeal or the excitement from doing it. Um, and then that's where people talk about habits because it's, well, how can I get myself to do it? And I think that's really what hard is. Uh, we also talked about in the um, red, yellow, green episode, how people perceive exertion very differently based on what they're taught is correct. And so one example, is we said, if you have 20 athletes on a soccer team and you say, OK, we're going to do conditioning and you have them run a couple laps around a complex and then they, they come back you know, when you, you group them up and you say, okay, that's how you train. That's how you get better. That's what hard work looks like and hard work pays off. So those athletes all experience the different level of exertion, right? So it's as if they're all looking at a different color and then you're saying to them, that's green, right? So they now have all learned that a different color is green, right? Um, and so as a consequence, right, when they go to the, you know, in their car, um, there's, you're going to have a problem, right? Because they're not going to interpret, say, the traffic light in the same way. So, and by that kind of like loose sort of metaphor or whatever, trying to make the point that people then go from those formative experiences and they go off and then they apply that, right? So people are also learning their concept of hard um, based on those formative experiences of when they did an exertion and the, the, the coach um, or the coach figure the person who's providing the reinforcement is giving them um, positive or negative reinforcement based on, on their perception. And people usually positively reinforce um, comparative performance among individuals um, rather than, you know, reinforce like individual performance in terms of did you how close did you get to doing what's best for you? It's how close did you get to doing what's better than everybody else? And so these sort of athletes who show up and are kind of already, quote unquote, naturally um, or at baseline in that environment, come into that environment are fitter and stronger. Well, they're going to be learning that to go hard is something that's very different than the athletes in the middle or the back of the pack. And so the athletes in the middle of the back of the pack are going to repress their uh, potential to respond from training because they're going to train too. They've learned to train too intensively. And even if that top athlete is being reinforced to train a little bit too hard. Um, the reality is, is that by virtue of being out front in that conditioning session, they don't have to push themselves to failure, right? Because they don't have anybody ahead of them that they feel they need to be able to perform next to. So they're really going to learn a level of intensity that is much closer to something that's more relaxed and sustainable. And so that also has an impact on the concept of what it means to train hard. So then the conclusion 
um, or the inference or the insight that we can get from this concept to people training hard every day is that like it's probably not what we're projecting or imagining hard to be, right? Because a lot of us perceive it as pushing things to failure. So one experience that I've had athletically is I did swim team for a few years before I ever got into any other endurance sports, you know, training conditioning based sports. And, you know, so the next sport that I got into uh, was running. And I did both um, at the same time for a number of years. And in swimming, everything was organized around sets, you know, where it'd be periods of work, 50 meters, 100 meters, 200 meters, you know, intervals like that, and it would be on a net time. So it could be 100 meters on 90 seconds. And you would swim the 100 meters, and then whatever time was left before the 90 second interval was up, you would sit there and rest, and then you would go again. And so you're, you're naturally going to, you know, pace yourself in response to that environment. And so, you know, as you do that, right, you're only really working for, maybe you're working for 70 seconds, right? And you're giving yourself 20 seconds to sort of take a breather, and then you do your next rep in the set, right? Maybe it's 10, maybe it's 50, whatever. So, and you carry that over to running, right? So your concept of what's easy and what's hard, um, and, and this is what was true, true for me, was skewed, right? Because I would sort of set out for something that I perceived as, as being comfortable and sustainable, a training effort. And then, you know, you would start to get fatigued uh, very quickly. And, you know, I didn't know, I had no concept of the time, at the time, well, I'm, I'm carrying this to this. Right. And I think, you know, the reality is, is it's clearly the case that for a lot of people in, who are involved in coaching and are in coaching positions, they don't think about this stuff. They don't think about what's the training history of these different athletes, you know, what kind of like preconceived notions are they going to bring to the table? You know, oh, yeah, swimmers really, you know, train in really short interval bouts. So doing continuous, you know, longer periods of exercise is going to be you know, different or, you know, the um, level of perceived exertion in running, you know, they need to learn something different, you know. So for me, it was very natural to go out and I would, and it's still true for me to this day. I just have, you know, over time figured things out, tried to be a little bit more mindful um, and then, you know, still make mistakes and, and errors because that sense of how it feels to exercise and what feels sort of stimulating and rewarding also, you know, has a biasing effect in terms of how we manage our effort and makes it hard to manage our effort. So, you know, I'll still, um, you know, have to navigate this stuff and be mindful about this stuff. Otherwise, I'll just sort of collapse back into those patterns of where all the intensities that I'll self-select, you know, might feel fine for a couple minutes. And then if I'm, let's say I'm doing a, you know, 10 minute effort or a four minute effort or whatever, well, you know, after two minutes, I transition from feeling, you know, relaxed and feeling like I'm doing interval intensity, um, you know, appropriate. And then all of a sudden that sort of it's like it feels like it catches up with you. And then the whole rep is a, a disaster. Right. And, you know, you can't really execute the work you set to do because you're not setting your uh, pacing out appropriately. Right. But, you know, if you have a concept of what it means to train productively, that is going to influence your behavior. Right? And so for me, one of the self-imposed interventions is I know that if I don't really mindfully and deliberately like decide, okay, this is what I'm going to do and this is, I need to cap my effort and I need to control my environment, I'm going to make mistakes. Um, you know, another great example is you know, just sort of going out on loops, training runs with hills and you know, whether they're on the roads or whether they're on you know, in the woods or whatever, um, and, and going over these loops with these hills. And I just sort of will just sort of bound into the hills and, you know, I'll, I'll go slow, but the reality is I'm working way, way, way too hard. But, you know, I've, my formative experience with running was you just go out and you just kind of run the loop. And I always ran with um, the people that I like to socialize with at practice, happened to be people who were racing, you know, two or three minutes faster than me in the 5,000. Um, and so I would sort of be going around with these people and sort of I learned uh, 
in a sense, right, to run probably faster um, and, and do more effort than I need to. So in that environment, you know, we would be going up a hill and they would be chilling, right? And I would be sort of driving a little bit to get over that. And accumul- the accumulating effect of that is I end up training way harder than them in terms of if you define hard training as the what is the sort of ex- experience or uh, demand of the work that you're doing. And this kind of stuff, the intensity of how you train is really what matters more. And so if, I don't know, right, uh, David Goggins type person says, you know, I, I train hard every day. Well, that's his perception, right? That's how he just, A, that's how he describes it. B, there's a social economic incentive for him to say he trains hard every day. Um, and then lastly, um, you know, like, it's probably not actually that hard, okay? Um, it's hard to do in terms of like initiating it, routine, making the time. It's hard to say no to books, video games, TV shows, you know, taking a nap, you know, waking up, being rested and just being like, screw it, I'm going to just sleep for another hour because I don't want to get up. Not because you need it, you just like, eh, fall back asleep, right? You know, those kinds of things. It's hard to say no to those forms of immediate gratification. But if he's doing what he's doing, right, in, in his videos that he posts, and I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not a David Goggins content consumer, but, you know, in the minimal that I've looked at, you know, well, if he's, he's talking and he's, he's comfortable, right? So he might say, well, I ran 15 miles and I did this and this was my third session and he's riding on the indoor bike. Okay, but he's talking like he's giving a TED Talk, right? And okay, he's sweating, big deal. It doesn't have any reflection of anything except the environment, um, in terms of temperature, right? But like, he's talking comfortably, right? So to me, I interpret that as he's working out um, up to, but still below aerobic threshold. And for a lot of people, the determining factor there is, well, how do I know, right? How hard should I train? And so, and this brings us back to the recovery modality, which is that you apply intensity, and intensity is the lever of improvement, and then you apply recovery, and when you are external to the environment of intensity, you experience improvement, and then you return to intensity and reapply the lever, and you sort of sequentially move back and forth between these things. And if, though, recovery is not real, and if we have a more expanded concept of where the idea of training hard comes from and what it means to train hard uh, should mean in practice, I think then what we have to recognize is that um, we have to design our training very differently. And so that brings us to kind of now the original points in the episode, um, or at least moving now into totally different territory than we explored in the last episode. Um, and, and this would be like, how do we want to design training? Because if recovery isn't real, then we need to design our training differently. Okay. And um, the two problems, one of which we've already established or viewed, um, the two problems that make it hard to figure out how to design training correctly are number one, the sort of stimulus versus non-stimulus periods, right? The idea that like um, you work hard, you apply a stimulus, and then you go on a period of non-stimulus. And it's that ping-ponging effect that, you know, in and out um, of those states that allows the improvement to occur, all right? Um, You know, the other, I think, sort of more subtle distinction there is, you know, how are people interpreting what stimulus is and how are people interpreting what the non-stimulus is? Um, And then that gets back to the concept of, you know, what does it mean to train hard, like we just talked about. The second thing um, is, you know, what I would call kind of in a tongue-in-cheek way, I guess, but holder of secrets, okay? Uh, basically, the more complex and inaccessible something is, the more likely we are to accept it, right? Because it's like with certain things, it's like, it's like if we can't understand it, people sometimes just absolutely aggressively reject it outright, or they'll just be like, yeah, okay, right? And so how do you shape those outcomes, right? So if you... Um, show aesthetic content um, in association with a proposed methodology, rather than try to understand the methodology, you can just look at the mesomorphy, look at the bodies, 
um, you know, in the, the social landscape of the people who claim to be applying these methods. If you like what you see, then it validates the method, right? Um, if you don't like what you see, um, it doesn't validate the method. And, you know, that's why it's, you know, there's so much um, fraud that goes on uh, in terms of, you know, self-presentation um, on contemporary media. Not that there hasn't always been historically with media. There has always been with media. Media is largely a place where people go to um, present things, right? And to present something, there's always going to be some issue or challenge of authenticity, even if you're trying to be as specific and accurate as possible, that's still going to be hard to do. Um, it's just difficult. You know, the historian has this problem too, right? If how do you, you're inevitably not going to be able to include, um, you know, every conceivable piece of information because you won't have access to it, right? That it, you know, hasn't, never wasn't preserved by previous people who studied it, right? And this whole, like, what are the facts of history, Right. Well, what are the facts of training? What are the facts of a training program? Um, what somebody's ass looks like is not really evidence um, for 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 training. Right. Whether or not what somebody's hair looks like, <laughs> the folks who look like they go to the salon or the barbershop every day. Right. And then the, the right before they go to the gym and then they work out and they never sweat like, well, people for some reason are drawn to that. Right. Um, it, it's that aesthetic validates. Um, the aesthetics validate for people the methodology. So those are two problems that we have to overcome. And I think for some people, if you can't reason your way past those obstacles, um, if you can't, you know, sort of like engage with the kind of intellectual problem of training, then I think that you're going to be stuck and you're not going to be able to design your training effectively. And I think this happens all the time that uh, people... And training is such an interesting subculture because there's really no accountability, right, for us as like participants. So like with and I'm not I'm not saying there should be. I don't think that you should have to have a driver's license, um, you know, for training. You shouldn't have to have a oh, do you have an exercise license? Are you licensed to be out here doing this exercise? Like, I don't I don't think that's necessary. But, you know, if you look at driving, right, there's a minimum licensing requirement. Right. And people still drive dangerously and erratically all the time. People constantly drink and drive in our culture you know this because if you run or you ride your bike outside you you know there are areas where you see you know just constantly accumulating discards of you know uh, beer and, and hard alcohol bottles and and whatnot on the sides of the road it's you know it's pretty horrifying and you just so but really but you just get so used to that being part of the landscape that I kind of for my part anyway you just kind of stop thinking about it but when you pause and reflect it's like kind of concerning right? Um, but that's something that, like, there's a minimum standard, right? And we kind of have enforced this thing. Um, and again, I don't think you should have to pass a license by some governing body um, or some board of review in order to do exercise. I think what's cool about it is people can try different things. I think what's unfortunate about it is sometimes um, people want to achieve certain outcomes, but they just won't find their way to um, the, the stuff that's actually really going to substantively work um, and, and they end up pursuing something different. But, you know, right, the horses, horses for courses, some people don't uh, like that. Some people value the, the benefits of conformity and doing what they see around them over other things. Um, if you can set this other stuff aside, then I think the things that I'm going to lay out here um, could be helpful because if you're not going to apply those things, I think well, this is one of the other struggles is it's like we might perceive something to be stupid or wrong, but we don't have any idea of what to do next. And that's that uh, holder of secrets phenomenon is that we don't even understand a lot of us, some of the basic concepts of training, uh, which will allow us to then um, reach different conclusions, right? So if we can't find an alternative, you know, and this happens and I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but like people do tend to sort of do what's comfortable and familiar, uh, and just because we gravitate to something or we would sort of prefer something or self-select something doesn't mean that that's right. I mean, you can even just go back to my example earlier in the episode of the way in which my experience of what it means to pace myself in exercise from swimming has made it challenging to pace myself in exercise and, and running over the years. Um, I kind of defer back to what was originally familiar and comfortable, and I've 
you know, reinforce that, right? And then you combine that with the environment of, you know, sort of of not being the, the, the great athlete on the team, right? The, usually the solution to that for the coach is to tell people, hey, you need to go even harder. That's, that's the issue here. So the design approach to training that's effective is in some ways kind of boring um, at the sort of surface level, like what is the thesis or argument, okay? But, you know, there's value in trying to find the simplest possible explanation. Um, the more complex something is, it doesn't mean the more correct it is. Um, I, I think if you, can't, if you can't take a complex thing and find a simpler way to try to identify like the key foundational components of it, I think then your understanding of it is probably limited. Um, as an educator, I, I don't believe that all concepts can be reduced to absolute simplicity. You know, if you take an economics class that I teach, um, you know, some of these economic principles, um, you know, and it's like you can't at a certain point, right, the law of supply or the law of demand, right, or market equilibrium, there's only a certain level of reduction there. And if you re- you can't reduce it beyond a certain point without it, it's losing its essential nature or form. But with training, I think it's often so overwhelmingly complex to the point where it's deliberately complex. And that's like a part of the con artistry of like, let's make this uh, inaccessible in order to create dependence in the consumer population. So to train effectively, what we really need to do um, is we need to apply the principles of practicing effectively to get better at anything. Um, and, you know, because any form of practice to improve creates a physical change. If you're learning a musical instrument, um, or if you're going hiking, right? Um, like, if you're learning to get better at cooking, there's physical changes there. And we know this because if you take an aluminum bat and you hit, have somebody hit you in the head with it, uh, and please don't do this, but, you know, speaking in a rhetorical sense, if you have somebody hit you in the head with that aluminum bat every morning after you get up, um, after a, a while, you're not going to be the same person anymore, okay? Because all of our capacity to do is ultimately physical, right? So you, in order to get better at playing the piano, physical things have to change, right? And then you might be like, well, what about these, you know, savants who already just can play the piano, well, if they're not changing their ability to play the piano, then they're not improving. So like, that's not a good example of anything, right? That's an example of being static. We're talking about examples of improvement. And so to get better at things, um, the first thing you need to do is you need to practice them a lot, right? Everybody knows in the concept of how to practice to improve, there's a minimum amount of practice necessary at which point you will start to see improvement. You know that you need to practice um, frequently, right? You can't just practice once a month and for 20 hours, right? If you do that, you're not going to get better, right? That's too far apart and it's too much of an overload, right? You wouldn't be able to sustain doing that anyway because it would be so tedious and boring. Um, and we all know that the biggest problem with practice is it's boring, it's hard for most of us to find um, the patterns of practice to be enjoyable, right? Um, we oftentimes say it's boring, but another way we could say that if we're using training language is to say that practice is hard. And, you know, it's something that we try to avoid, right? Hard in training culture, I think, really is a sort of mass for the concept of I want to avoid that, you know, because, um, you know, it's boring, Um and, you know, you might say, well, no, but like a lot of times it's because it's like really painful and like you don't want to do it because it's hard. That's what painful means. Well, that also is the same thing as it being boring. Like it's actually not impossible to do that. It's just that your sense of reward um, won't allow you to put up with that, right? If you, in school, the classes that you quote unquote hate are classes where the, the practice that you need to do is just so boring that it like hurts to do it. Um, and everybody's had these experiences. Um, and a lot of times it's like, well, it needs to be fun. And, you know, it's like, well, that would be a solution, right? But is that really attainable? Maybe the problem there is that um, 
isn't that it needs to be fun. Maybe the problem is that the amount of practice that we're inflicting on people is just not possible to be fun, right? And it doesn't have to be this, you know, like the gamification stuff of training or whatever, I don't think is always beneficial. I think it's perfectly reasonable for people to, you know, say, oh, well, if I go off the treadmill instead I go outside, you know, that that should be good enough. If you're running for half an hour um, outside in an area that's nice and the weather is good, like, that should be good enough, okay? Like, at a certain point, right, we do have to have some habits of, like, you know, you know what, my my sort of sense of, like, the immediate gratification for this isn't high enough is maybe a little bit overstated, maybe a little bit overwrought. So, and the last thing that people think about with this stuff is is intensity, right? People almost never think about intensity when they talk about practice to improve at something. And that's what we should be thinking about anyway with this stuff is what's the best way to improve? I mean, that's the goal is improvement, so we should be studying the process of improvement. Um, but people think that they're doing that by looking at Things that are basically don't constitute evidence, and we'll we'll talk more about evidence to validate um, the methods of improvement a little bit later here. But if we just take these principles of practice and we say, well, what does this mean uh, for training? So that means the hierarchy of decision and design is the first thing you need to do is identify the necessary volume of practice or training. Therefore, right, we're talking taking the concept of a practice and we're applying it specifically to. Fitness, and in fitness, we call practice training. Um, and then we're going to say next, well, what's the frequency? How often should I do this? And then we should we should say, um, what's the intensity? Okay? And when we talk about intensity, first of all, intensity should not exceed the point at which it negatively impacts our volume. Okay? That's one essential absolute. Okay? Because... Volume is the most important component, most important component that leads to improvement, not intensity. Intensity is the component that most frequently leads to stagnation and injury. And the second thing we should think about when we think about intensity is what is the minimum stress needed to get the response? Okay, because once we're getting the response, we're good. All right. Um, and you get into that the diminishing return in a sense, right? It seems like that's what happens, right? And it's, you know, part of that is as the intensity goes up, um, the volume starts to drop. So we're saying the intensity can be as high as the volume and the frequency allow. But like, you can't have a level of intensity that means then you can't do your volume and frequency because the volume and then the frequency are more important than the intensity. So rather than a stress recover model, right, where you're saying, well, on this day I work out, on this day I recover, and then people create recovery workouts. I saw something uh, the other day of a woman recommending that, well, here's what I do for recovery for soccer training. Then it was like I go to this football field and I sprint from here to here, and I sprint from here to here, and I sprint from here to here. Well, that's not recovery. I don't see how that constitutes recovery. And this thought process prevents us from thinking about it as designing as an environment, right? So, so practice is an environment, right? If you want to get better at the piano, um, as, another, as an example again, right, get better at a musical instrument, um, you don't try to maybe radicalize your entire lifestyle. You actually try to keep your life is basically the same. And then it's just like there are certain times when you go and you play the piano and then maybe you do some little things that make it easier or more enjoyable for you to be able to do your volume and your your frequency and be able to keep practicing the piano. And you certainly don't go in there and say, I'm going to now play the piano as hard as I can. That doesn't make any sense. But that's the way people talk when they talk about exercise. And so if you look at it from the perspective of what does it mean to practice well, what we realize is a lot of times people aren't actually practicing well at all. And so the environment that we're trying to create needs to be an environment of volume, volume, frequency, and then also consistency, right? These things um, together create consistency, and then the intensity, right, is something that occurs. There is a level of intensity. You don't get increasing rewards, though, for more intensity, because as the intensity goes up, it has a negative effect on volume. And there's a more um, specific effect here, 
Well, we can tie this to the concept of threshold, where at first, as intensity goes up, volume is really not affected, right? Or the volume may be limited, but may be limited on the, oh, at this speed, I can only go for eight hours instead of 10, right? But you're probably only going to be working out for 60 to 90 minutes if it's a run or a couple hours, you know, most of the time it's a bike. You know, yes, I understand, you know, some people will go out and they might do eight hour rides, but you know, people, generally speaking, up to the elite level, aren't exercising 36 to 40 hours a week, you know, on the bike. That's just not really what's happening because that's too hard. It's too boring. Nobody really, at the end of the day, it's like not worth it because you're, you just sort of sacrifice all of your time. And it's diminishing return. Like you don't really continue to get the same scale of benefit um, as you just add each additional 60 minutes of riding. So what we want to be thinking about, and this ties into this, this idea of like, well, uh, what? how do we know where to, to break this stuff off? How do we know what the intensity should be? Because we still need to answer that intensity question, right? Because it's one thing to say we don't want too much intensity, but I'm also suggesting that most of us can't tell the difference anyway. And, you know, we can be stuck and not have success uh, like designing a training schedule is easy. It's not complicated um, once you have these understandings. But you can design a training schedule and have no positive impact on how somebody trains um, if you don't understand what the intensity is. And that's about controlling intensity, not maximizing intensity. Again, we're looking to control the intensity. We are not looking to maximize the intensity. And when we're thinking about this, now what we need to be thinking about is evidence. So one way um, to look at the conflict, the concept of evidence is to say evidence is something that influences us to reach a particular conclusion. And this is why the term influencer is, I think, you know, in some ways, actually a very appropriate term. Um, because the purpose of that is to create the sense of evidence uh, to support something, right? And marketing has gone from telling people why something works to trying to find more, um, some way subtle, but ultimately just more, ultimately the the driving factor is what's most effective. Um, and if subtlety is effective, you use subtlety. But how can you convince people, give people evidence and something is more effective, right? And so associating products with aspirational um sort of life outcomes that people don't have but maybe want. And, you know, one area where we find that is in physical appearance. And one area where we find that, at least in contemporary culture, is athletic body types are super celebrated right now um, as being aesthetically desirable. And that's one way to try to build um, and push these kinds of associations on us, right? And so it influences us. But not everything that can influence us is evidence because I'm going to be a little more selective and say actual evidence has to meet a minimum threshold. Um, and that threshold is it needs to be verifiable. It needs to be repeatable. It needs to reflect um, the claim or the finding because the claim or the finding should be derived from the evidence. As a teacher, one of the things that's difficult to, to try to teach to students uh, is that when you're looking to you know, write a paper, do some research, you don't form the answer in your head and then go out and find the evidence to support that answer. You need to look at the evidence and the information, and then you're trying to find the pattern. But it seems more efficient to people to just form the answer and then go find things that fit, right? And we're really focused on the answer because the answer is where we perceive the value to be. But the real value is... If the answer is valuable, what's valuable is how we get the answer. And we get the answer by knowing what the evidence is. And in order to know that, we need to know what constitutes actual um, evidence. And in the context of exercise, evidence is also something that you can, you can create, your own evidence. right? So you can look at evidence, but there's also like a method of doing that. So your exercise is your experiment. right? Every time you train, you're applying the hypothesis of if I do this, then I will get faster. And so the evidence is, do you, do you see that happening, right? But then you've got to figure out what are you going to measure, right, in order to create that evidence. You could measure velocity. You could measure power. You could measure heart rate. Um, you could measure 
duration, you could measure climate, you could measure body temperature, you could measure um, blood lactate, um, you know, you could measure diet, right? Look at what are these different variables, um, obvious, inobvious, right? We're limited by the variables we can measure, and in that sense, you can do that. Now, if people don't want to do this, that's fine. Like a lot of people want the benefits of fitness, or they like exercise, but they don't like thinking about it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if we're looking at the perspective of, well, how do we get the best results? Sometimes you have to think about it, and that would lead to better results. And if you're not willing to think about it, then you need to accept the fact that you're not going to get the level of results that you would if you were, in fact, willing to think about it. That's just what happens sometimes. Um, So when we think about this concept of, like, evidence, then that means that designing training is, again, still pretty simple, right? Because we're taking the evidence and then we're looking to see, is this working? So, right, you know, and we use the evidence relative to parameters. So one parameter could be that uh, we can't train too hard, okay? Because, and how do we know if we're doing that? Well, if we have to cut our volume short, if we find that we can't do what we want to do the next day, we train too hard, okay, right? By logically, um, by logical thought process, right? We have to reason that okay, if we can't do what we set out to do, it must be it must have not been doable for us. Otherwise, we would have done it, right? You might say, well, I didn't really want to. Well, you're you you were willing to do it yesterday, and you're probably going to do it again in two days, but you couldn't do it on this day. Well, then there's a problem, right? Because you're still in general can do it. So why is it on these certain instances you're not doing it when you need to do it to get the benefit? Right, it must be because we're approaching it too hard. Right, we made it. We made our body too fatigued, so it's too unpleasant to try to exercise. Um, it's too boring, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay, so designing the training right is creating that environment, and you know essentially that's you know you figure out what is the right intensity, and you can do that by determining your aerobic threshold, and you can do that with lactate test. Okay, we talked about the lactate stuff. Uh, certainly on other episodes, easy way to do it, uh, get a lactate meter, go to the track, go to a flat road, um, jog for 10 minutes, easy, warming up, check your lactate. Okay, now run at what you think is a appropriate, normal training pace. Check your lactate. Now run at the pace that you think is your steady threshold pace. Okay, and um, if and then you can correlate this to your speed, or if you get like a, a stride pod, you can kind of get those running watts and use that. Then you take, so but the point is you take this, you look at what you're doing, and you say, okay, right, where did my lactate jump? I can figure this out. So I did the other day, I was thinking, you know, I've really been struggling with a strained muscle, pulled muscle in my pectoral, making it harder to expand my diaphragm. And, it, you know, summer is hot and it's humid. You know, I feel like I'm struggling, you know, my shins are hurting, you know, what's going on? So I took the lactate meter, I went to the track, you know, I jogged for 10 minutes and my lactate was 0.8. And then I jogged for another 10 minutes and uh, my lactate was 1.7. And then I ran at what I felt my threshold should be uh, for 10 minutes and my lactate was 5.8. And I was like, oh, okay, so I'm doing this too hard, right? And so I changed it, right? I backed it off down to where I know it needs to be because in my curve, right, my steady millimoles are about, you know, 1.2, 1.3, 1.8, 1.7. And then after that point, it jumps. So when I'm getting up to 1.7, you know, that means I'm kind of at the point where I'm, you know, putting that aerobic strain on there. And I don't really need to go beyond that point. And then you can do a couple workouts where you bring your lactate meter with you and you kind of, you know, pause every once in a while and you check, you see where you're at. You know, so for example, I came back the next day and I said, I'm just, let me just try running half miles and then 100 meter jogs. And so I was running, I did five at like, you know, just under eight minute pace. And I checked it and lactate was 2.1. Okay, for me, that's too much, right? Because my, that means it's jumped up. It's on that level means the curve is starting to climb that's too much strain. Um, so then I backed off and I did the next five and I finished and it was 1.6, right? So I was able to correct and you kind of calibrate your brain in there and then you find that groove and then you can start to get benefit. You can start to do training that's going to be effective. And 
you then you periodically you come back and you retest and you you look to see and when you can start to at a faster pace right you're you're still in that steady state or at a greater watts you're in that steady state well now you know that in the training session okay i can move that up a little bit but you're also just trying to figure out that that intensity and so this is what is uh complex about designing training right is saying that okay i should go out and i should do a running session of about 60 to 70 minutes pretty much every day of the week and that in that session you know i want to try to do anywhere from 30 to 55 minutes I want to spend at threshold and I can break that up however I want, right? I could do that 60 seconds, 30 seconds. I could do it 10 minutes, one minute, right? It doesn't matter, right? It, you chop it up based on how you want. You can do it on the track. You can do it on a trail. You can do it on the road. You can do it around a field, right? Where do you want to be? And I just sort of shift the environment depending on what's interesting to me because it doesn't really matter, and if anything, it's probably, you know, a slight additional benefit to changing the environment. But like I'm keeping myself engaged and interested by doing that. You know, if I want to listen to a book on audiobook while I'm doing that, then I do that. If I don't, I don't want to talk to myself, I do that. If I just want to run around and, you know, have my brain feel empty, I do that. Right. But I, I can change those things. And you know, this comes to that's the complexity, though, is like, um, what's the environment for a given individual? Right? And how do you manage that environment? How do you make that an environment in which you're going to feel motivated and engaged? And like, how do you keep doing it? Right? You know, how do you maintain what people call motivation? Okay, because the reality is what you're really working out is the higher end of the green zone. And I've said on another episode that, you know, I've heard John Marcus on his podcast with Steve Magnus, you know, has asserted that the entire green zone um, for polarized training is recovery and that may or may not be true to how people who are really into polarized training models try to represent that i don't care after a certain point of understanding because i am not trying to enact the dogmatic principles of polarized training but i can tell you that uh, the intensity of threshold is passed as you pass out of the green zone and so that means in that diagram you really want to be in that lower state. And I've posted, you know, my own sort of um, exemplar of those three zones on our Instagram page, which you can look at if you want to see a visual. But you're basically trying to train towards the higher end of that green zone where the lactate is still steady, is what you'd see. The lactate is still steady, right? And you're training up to the point where it starts to climb because there's no additional benefit to overloading the system, right? Once you're applying aerobic stress, you're applying aerobic stress, and then the body's going to react more strongly the more of a stimulus that it experiences, okay? And when we train really hard and we're really fatigued, um, we can't actually then train as frequently as close to that threshold. So the body doesn't experience as stressful of an environment, which is ironic because we're experiencing a lot of stress, um, but we're not experiencing the right kind of stress to get the right kind of adaptation, and that's what designing training is all about. We want to try to identify what is the target outcome? How do we get the most practice at the state that's going to allow that to occur? So I think a reasonable goal for everybody looking to try things differently is you should be trying to exercise twice a day aerobically. And in each of those sessions, you should be trying to spend some time close to your threshold if you can't do this twice a day, slow down, lower the watts, okay? And how much volume you have, right, is based on the time that you have in your schedule, the time that you're willing to spend, and then the time that's, you know, going to be right for you. And that's variable, and I can't prescribe that over a podcast because that's, and people who claim they can do that, that, that's false, right? But, you know, as a generalization, what we're trying to do is, design the environment that's right for a given individual, okay? So depending on what your level of, of training history is, is going to determine that. So that could be uh, a 20-minute session in the morning and a 20-minute session in the evening. That could be a 60-minute session and a 45-minute session. That could be a 75-minute session and a two- to three-hour session. It depends on your schedule. It depends on what you can do. But if you're training at threshold, right, you will find 
quickly through experimentation and evidence, you will learn. You can try doing more. You try doing less. And you, will, you are capable of finding what is that sustainable amount of training. And that's going to be where you're going to be getting the most bang for your buck. And that's the purpose of training is say, how can we yield a improvement um, based on the amount of work that we're putting in? We're not trying to just sort of like crush ourselves mindlessly. And so your most important influence on your decision making when you design training should be the evidence that you collect. And that evidence should allow you to find the right amount of volume, the right amount of frequency. And then you're going to need to regulate your intensity so this can happen. And... If you need to find that intensity, you need to do that by finding that threshold. And if you can't find that threshold, then you're, it's not going to work. Okay. And when it doesn't work, what will happen? People will go back to the things that other people say, because that's where we see kind of the concentration of rhetoric. And that's not the right way to train. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Black Cats Run. August... We'll have an episode and we'll talk um, in detail about designing training. So go more into the complex pieces of that. Um, what are the different variables to think about, to walk through, I guess in a sense, maybe kind of like an exemplar of what are the principles that you can use to design um, a program towards aerobic development. And you know, that's how you get better is through aerobic development. And then what role, if anything, these supplemental things have to do. So if you enjoyed this episode, you can check out our other episodes. We also have an Instagram uh, page, and you can check us out there. Uh, if you know somebody else who would enjoy this kind of stuff, feel free to recommend to them, and we'll catch you next time.